You've got your sermon outline, your Bible this morning. I want to start with a story, one of the gentler, more family-friendly Brothers Grimm stories, because they're not all family-friendly. They are grim, some of them. A king had a beautiful daughter who was so proud and arrogant that no suitor was good enough for her. She rejected one after the other, ridiculing them as they came. The king sponsored a great feast and invited from far and near all the men wanting to get married. And they were placed in a row according to their rank and standing. And she came through. But she objected to something about each one of them. One was too fat, one was too tall, the third was too short, the fourth was too pale, the fifth was too red, and the sixth was not straight enough. And thus she had some objection to each one. But she ridiculed especially one prince who stood at the very top of the row and whose chin had grown a little crooked. And she said, look, crying out, laughing, he has a chin like a thrush's beak. And from that time, he was called Thrushbeard. Now the old king, seeing that his daughter did nothing but ridicule the suitors who were gathered there, there, became very angry. And he swore that she should have for her husband the very first beggar to come to his door. A few days later, a minstrel came and sang beneath the window trying to earn a small handout. When the king heard him, he said, let him come up. And so the minstrel in his dirty, ragged clothes came in and sang before the king and the princess. And when he was finished, he asked for a small gift. The king said, I liked your song so much that I will give my daughter for a wife. The priest was called in and she had to marry the minstrel at once. After that happened, the king said, it's not proper for you, a beggar's wife, to stay in the palace any longer. All you can do now is go away with your husband. The newlyweds left immediately for the minstrel's home, and they walked through a large forest, a beautiful meadow, and a large town. And after each, the princess asked, who owns this large forest, or this meadow, or this large town? And Her husband replied, it belongs to the king. If you had married his son, it would be yours. And she said, I am a miserable thing. Finally, they came to his small hut. And she looked around for the servants. And he said, there are no servants. You are going to need to learn to cook and to clean and earn some wages. And so she tried at each task. But she was not good at anything. So he sent her into the marketplace finally to sell pots. But a soldier trampled down all the pots she tried to sell. And finally the beggar told his wife that he had arranged for her to get a job as a kitchen maid. And she would bring home leftovers that they lived on. And so this went on for some time. And she gradually forgot what it was like to be the princess. But the king's son had a wedding. 
And this woman who used to live in the palace but was now the kitchen maid watched from the doorway. And unexpectedly, the king's son approached her and asked her to dance. She was startled to see that it was the same young man that she had nicknamed Thrushbeard so many years before. And in her alarm, she dropped the scraps of food that she had put in her pockets to take home. She was humiliated. But the prince lifted her head and spoke to her, Don't be afraid. I am the minstrel who has been living with you in this miserable hut. For the love of you, I disguised myself. And I was also the soldier who broke your pottery to pieces. All this was done to humble your proud spirit and to quell the arrogance with which you ridiculed me. She cried out bitterly and said, I was terribly wrong and I am not worthy to be your wife. But he said, Be comforted, the evil days are past. Now we will celebrate our wedding. The maids in waiting came and dressed her in the most splendid clothing, and her father and his whole court came in and wished her happiness in her marriage with Thrushbeard the prince, and their true happiness began only then. See, sometimes in life, we find ourselves, the princess, humbled. But other times, we find ourselves, the prince, insulted. We've got to bear those insults and respond. Sometimes royalty, a prince, has to learn how to react, how not to react with anger or arguments, but to form a different plan to get what he wants. To accomplish his mission, sometimes a king has to choose gentleness rather than raw power and authority. And in today's text, we see a king who was treated like Thrushbeard. He was misunderstood. And he was not only insulted, he was plotted against. His response could have been anger, striking back, even an awesome display of his power. But this king chose the path of peace, the path of humility, the path the path that would bring life and healing to others, and ultimately the path that would bring him the bride that he wanted. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're looking at verses 14 through 21. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, Jesus, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. 
nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now the fundamental conflict, if you remember last week, we actually dip back into uh, the passage that we preached on last week. The Pharisees cannot handle Jesus. The specific incident that set up verse 14 is that Jesus, after teaching on the Sabbath, heals a man's hand on the Sabbath. And more broadly than just that one incident, the Pharisees are not handling the whole of Jesus' ministry well at all. When we stop and look, Jesus is bringing light, life, healing, and salvation to men. When we look at it that way, we say, how wonderful, who wouldn't want that? What is there to be angry about? And yet, you see the anger, the opposition to who Jesus was and what he did. And we've got to remember that opposition to the gospel comes. Never underestimate the wickedness of the human heart to oppose the light. We are naturally, naturally creatures of darkness. We shy from the light. Never underestimate the resistance to change, to wanting to keep the status quo. Never underestimate how much change the gospel brings. People won't tolerate being told that they are wrong. Remember that Jesus is bringing new wine. And he's demanding new wine skins to hold them. And the Pharisees are the keepers of the old wine skins. And if you were in their position, you wouldn't let that happen either. So they've got to act. Now Jesus is very aware of their opposition, as we see in verse 15. He knows they're conspiring against him. This has been building. Have you felt opposition in your life? I want to guess that most of us have. Maybe you're working hard at something that you want to accomplish, but there's people or forces that oppose you. It can really be a deflating experience. It can derail you from what you're trying to do when you meet that opposition. Many people get angry or depressed when they meet that kind of opposition. Many feel that their efforts are wasted. It's easy to give in or give up. But when someone has a driving mission that propels them forward, 
They can dismiss those who oppose them. They can push through the criticism. I mean, think of someone starting a small business, not, maybe not getting very far, not many customers, maybe the bigger companies are trying to push them out of business. Well, if they know their business plan is sound, they can push through. Think of an actor who goes to auditions and gets turned down over and over, told to get a real job. If they know deep down that that's what their calling is, what they're meant to do, they will stick with it. And that's what I think we get a sense of with Jesus here. He will not be turned aside. He will not be derailed by the opposition. Verses 18 through 20 are a paraphrase of Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. We read the broader context of that with the responsive reading this morning. So I hope it sounded familiar. It's, it's actually Matthew's longest Old Testament quotation. And it reminds us of what Jesus was called to, what his mission was. Let's note particularly verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. God the Father chose Jesus. It's one thing to put yourself in a place, to a position. It's another thing to be chosen, selected by the Master. Right? Jesus is God's servant. His whole life is one of serving His Father's plans. He's not free to follow a different course. His path has been laid out. But we know from this verse also that at the outset, at all times, God loves him deeply and is pleased with him. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, it made all the difference in the world to know that my parents supported, loved me, were proud of me. I think any kid, when he feels his parents' love, will do so much better at what he's trying to accomplish. And Jesus has that assurance of the Father's love. And he knows where he gets his power from. The Spirit empowers him. We see that. And so we see a very Trinitarian empowering that God chose Jesus, gave the Son, and in that power, he will minister. And in the opposition that comes, he will push through. So Jesus knows who he is and whose he is. But what else does this passage teach us? We're going to hang on to the idea of, of Jesus' servanthood and that, how that will define how he's acting and when and where he's going. We see that Jesus' servanthood to his Father honors the Father's timeline. Verses 15 and 16. Now, if you have your outline, it's on the back. Now, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. 
It's an interesting passage the first time you read it. You don't think of Jesus stepping back from confrontation. Because we remember Jesus bringing strong words of truth to the Pharisees. And we don't necessarily think of him asking people not to let him know, be known. And it's not that Jesus is afraid of the Pharisees, that he withdraws in verse 15. And in verse 16, when he tells those that he is healed not to make him known, I don't think it's that he wants to limit his ministry or his deliverance just to a select few. This is part of God's plan for his life that he is being completely submissive to. I think Jesus' withdrawal here, his, the strat, it's a strategy, what we call the messianic secret. You see, sometimes we have this picture of Jesus walking around and trying to get as many people as possible to hear the good news and to be saved, attracting huge crowds. And there's certainly truth to that, but woven into the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, is a desire on Jesus' part to really stay under the radar, a hesitancy to have the news about him spread too far. And I think this is the Father's timeline that Jesus understands. Early on, Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. Whereas later on, Jesus knows and he senses the time is coming and he's trying to tell the disciples. And he knows when it's time to head towards Jerusalem, toward his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. But that time is not yet. And so he withdraws from conflict. Now, not only does his father's will guide when he acts, but it also governs how he acts. And we see that Jesus' servanthood to his father governs his tone and his character. How he acts. Verses 19 and 20. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus' actions are a great contrast to the Pharisees, are they not? The Pharisees want to challenge and argue. But Jesus is not argumentative. He speaks truth. He rebukes. Sure, we see that. But he will be not be drawn in to what Isaiah says, quarreling in the streets. And while the Pharisees don't care about the man who is healed, and they just want to silence the man who healed, Jesus does not trample the weak and lowly. And we see that here. Now I know a month ago I preached a sermon from Matthew 11. And at one point urged Christ followers to be strong and forceful like John the Baptist. Some of you may remember that. Violent men are assaulting the kingdom and we need strong men and women to stand for the kingdom. Now, have I been caught in a bind here? 
Now that we read sort of the gentle part of Jesus' mission, this is very passive, not engagement. I don't think so. Let's listen to D.A. Carson harmonize these passages. On the one hand, as Matthew has made clear in the previous chapter, Jesus' witnesses are called to a holy and courageous boldness. A firm fidelity to the gospel that is willing to endure ostracism and even persecution. But we are not to display the kind of strength that is hard and harsh. The kind of uprightness that is angry and condescending. The kind of courage that is merely ruthless. The kind of witness that rants and manipulates. Carson says it well. There's this idea that we must hold strength and kindness in equal measures. Now, does the imagery of the bruised reed and the smoldering wick resonate with you? As we think about what, what that looks like, think of a reed growing in a forest or maybe a marshland. Anything that lands on it will, will bend it. And, and perhaps if it's already bruised, it will break. If you step on it, it will surely be crushed under your feet. And the smoldering wick is, is the flame that's about to go out. And the slightest breath will extinguish it. These are images of weakness. Of things that are easy to, to be trampled. But that Isaiah says... God's servant will take great care with. So who are the bruised reeds among us? Well, certainly those who have been hurt and abused by people who should have loved them and helped them. Those who struggle with addiction and feel ashamed and powerless. Those who feel like they've failed in life. Maybe they dropped out of school. They got fired. Some way that they feel like a failure. Those who believe that they don't measure up to the world's standards. Whether it's beauty, health, wisdom, personality. There's so many ways we compare ourselves, isn't it? If we don't measure up, we feel like a bruised reed. But I, want to, I think I want to go a little further than that. I don't think it's just the obvious hurting, although oftentimes we hide that very well, don't we? I think the strong and the successful, too, are bruised reeds. Maybe it's the CEO, the successful power businessman, the successful athlete, the winners, the one percenters. They are bruised reeds too, even if they won't let us see their bruises and their scars, because we're all fallen, we're all sinners, confused people, vulnerable and easily crushed. I was reminded of that this week. 
Here I am at uh, Northern Virginia Community College. This is the Bible Club uh, stand. I went out there to be part of the club fair, the Student Activities Day. Uh, I think it was about 175 degrees. Uh, there was a climbing wall, as you see in the back. Uh, was a band, free food, a live camel. Uh, I don't know if you can see the camel in the back, but he was back there. But they had tables for all the student clubs, and so I was there just helping. I've been, I've been going to the Bible club the last year, and those are the leaders there and their little board. And I don't know if you can see, we had uh, candy and cookies, even we had Bibles to hand out to students who walked by and were willing to talk to us. And so I got to participate in that. At, at various points, I talked to students from South Africa, South Korea, Pakistan, Reston, all over. <laughs> I met atheists, Muslims, theater people, all kinds of people. None of them seemed willing, or, or they certainly didn't take from me. I kept offering Bibles. I mean, cookies, candy, talk about the club. Here, we've got some free Bibles. Uh, it's okay. Until at one point, a, uh, a girl walked up and tentatively asked about the club. and uh, She was just sort of getting information. We talked for a little bit. Uh, I handed her a Bible. She, oh, thanks. How much? Oh, this is our gift to you, please. Um, and so we talked about where she was from, what she was studying. And right, she was about to sign the, the contact uh, page and give us her contact information. She stopped and she looked up at me. And she said, is it okay that I'm not straight? And I just looked at her and said, everybody's welcome. I hope to see you there. Of course, the next day, Wednesday, uh, Jeff and Dr. Dave and I got to go to Patrick Henry. Slightly different campus, if you haven't uh, been to both of them. And Dr. Dave preached in chapel on Jesus calming the storm. And I love chapel there because as well as you guys sing, they are loud. They sing these hymns full throat. It's, it's wonderful to be there. And we talked with several students after chapel. We had lunch and, and we kept hearing about how many classes they were taking and how uh, hard the work was. And uh, we asked about what they wanted to do after college, and many of them have great plans. Go to grad school, or get a government job, or missions work. And it was inspiring. So many of them love the Lord, and they love their churches, and they're on fire to get ahead in life. And I was just struck as I was thinking about this passage. It's, it's so easy to look at the Nova students and see a bunch of bruised reeds, right? Kids who need Jesus, people with baggage in their lives. And it's, it's just as easy to think of Patrick Henry students as strong, successful people who just need to be set loose for Jesus. And, and there's a lot of truth there. But for all the outward differences... And for the differences in their philosophies, politics, religion, they're all still college students who don't 
have it all figured out. And they all need Jesus. And they all have bruised places in their lives. And I think of the bruised reed in in each one of us. Whatever is weak in you, whatever makes you feel like that bruised reed that could be crushed, the thing that you are ashamed of, that you know if people found out about it, they would ridicule you or take advantage of you, Are we afraid that Jesus is going to crush us when he finds out? Because he's not. Jesus is gentle with us bruised reeds. And he restores. We've already read in Matthew that his yoke is easy. And you will find rest for your soul. And finally... Jesus' servanthood to his Father has a great mission. Bringing salvation to this world. The, the end of verse 20 and then into 21 and says, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now today marks the 50th anniversary of an event that is a true scar on our nation's history. Maybe some of you saw this in World Magazine or in the news. On September 15, 1963, 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama was getting ready for Youth Sunday. Four of the girls, Cynthia, Carol, Denise, and Addie Mae, who would be helping out with the service, were getting ready to be ushers or choir members. They were getting ready in the basement. And what they didn't know is that four members of the Ku Klux Klan had snuck into the church a little after midnight and planted 11 sticks of dynamite with a timer set to go off right before the service. You see, they were angry that segregation was happening and that African-American children had been allowed to attend white schools. So they were striking back. The dynamite went off. Those four girls were killed, buried in the rubble. The Sunday school lesson they just heard was the love that forgives. How do you deal with something like that? If you're part of that church, if you're a member of one of those families, if you're a part of a group that is oppressed and assaulted, The civil rights movement taught us the power of standing strong but not lashing out or hitting back. The nonviolent resistance of those like Martin Luther King Jr. was the key to turning the tide in the long-standing drive for racial equality. And the way of Jesus is the way of the servant. And it's often the way of suffering. In the face of anger, violence, and evil, it resists the fight. It doesn't return insults or get baited into heated arguments. It's the way of love, of caring for the weak and hurting. We show Jesus to this world when we live like that. 
And as we will continue to study throughout this gospel in Matthew, Jesus continued to live like this. Blessed by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, following the Father's design until the Pharisees made good on their threats to kill him. They brought him up on trial on false charges, and they had him condemned and sentenced to death. Even in the face of false accusations, Jesus did not quarrel or even defend himself. He went to death as a lamb led to slaughter. But in that death, God brought hope and justice to all people. Now this idea of justice, I'm going to take a second, because we have it in verse 18, where it says, He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then in verse 20, it says, he, will bring, he brings justice to, to victory. And sometimes that's translated, He brings forth justice. And we have to understand justice in, in at least three ways. And perhaps Isaiah didn't mean all of these, but in the scope of the whole Scriptures, we understand justice. Number one is that those who are hurting, those who have been oppressed, will have justice brought to them. Their oppressors will be held responsible. And they themselves will be lifted up. We think of what we've already learned in Matthew. The meek shall inherit the earth. Those who mourn will be comforted. There's a very real sense that the kingdom of righteousness and justice will bring just that. But number two, like it, when Jesus comes back, the wicked who do not repent will be punished. There will be a judgment day when justice will come and all people will be judged. Their sins will be held against them and justice will be pronounced on their guilt. Unless, the third idea of justice, those who repent and trust in Jesus will be justified before the judge of all. Our record of sin will not be counted against us. Because Jesus has already paid the price for those sins. The cross accomplished justice for God's wrath. For those who believe, those who have been called, they will be credited with the righteousness of Christ, who was sinless, will give his perfect Sinless account. That's what the Father will see on them. Let me read again some of the lines from that song we taught you this morning. We're going to close with it too. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by His own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Silent as He stood accused, beaten, mocked and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. 
sent of heaven God's own Son to purchase and redeem and reconcile the very ones who nailed him to that tree. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me whom the Son sets free. Oh, is free indeed. Truly that is good news. For those in Israel as well as for the Gentiles. For people of every tribe and tongue throughout the earth. It's good news for bruised reeds like you and me. And it's life and hope for those who will consider the way of the servant and the redemption brought from our suffering Savior. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this insight into Jesus' life, this passage that Jesus' life was prophesied about hundreds of years before he lived. The reminder that his life was divinely planned out, that Jesus knew his mission and he would not be turned aside by the opposition of sinful men. Lord, remind us of our mission. As Christ followers, we imitate Him. We are called to love God and love those around us, to spread Your words. Opposition will come. But we know it's a holy God who has called us just as he called, just as you called Jesus. Lord, we're greatly moved today as we think about your compassionate heart for the broken and suffering. Lord, there's truly no Savior like you. You don't run from our chaos. You enter into it. You don't despise our shame. You take it on. You don't ignore our burdens. You bear them. We have an aversion to pain and suffering, Lord. It's, we would rather avoid it in our own lives. And so we certainly don't want to enter into others' sufferings. Lord, change us. Help us to model our lives after you, the suffering servant. We know you'll never lead us into hard places where you're not present. You walk with us as you call us to minister to others. Thank you that you are the hope of all people, that even as you brought your kingdom of truth and justice with the gospel, that it is only partially known. One day we will experience the fullness of your kingdom. And in that, we have great hope. 
thank you that our sins are forgiven. Our debts are paid. We are counted righteous in your sight because of Christ's suffering on our behalf. Thank you for that amazing gospel. May we live out the way of Jesus in thanksgiving. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.